0: My guest is George Parker. George Parker is the political editor of the Financial Times. Welcome to the podcast, George. Hello. <laughs> right. We're going to talk about the the state, the current state of UK-E relations, but I think maybe to clarify for the benefit of our listeners, this is being recorded uh, two days before the local elections in the UK and, of course, the very important uh, elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly in Stormont. My first question is a pretty obvious question. To what extent is this the huge row brewing that has been brewing for some time between the UK and the EU over the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, just part of a political ploy by the British government, Boris Johnson, to, uh, to, st- to make sure that his base is galvanized and that he doesn't lose support domestically?
1: Well, I think that's certainly part of it, although it's a complicated picture as ever with anything to do with Northern Ireland politics and indeed British conservative politics when it comes to the European Union. Um, but certainly an element of this has been this sort of constant niggling over the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, which Boris Johnson obviously signed in 2019 as part of his Brexit deal. And he spent the last three years trying to repudiate it, both he and um, Lord David Frost, the the, uh, former Brexit minister, who's now out of the government but writes columns in the Daily Telegraph, (laughs) bemoaning the treaty that he himself negotiated. Um, And certainly there's an element that Boris Johnson um, needs to be seen to be um, trying to renegotiate or indeed scrapping parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol to pr- protect his own position. He's under pressure, as you know, uh, from Conservative MPs over his leadership. Um, he's been concerned about pressure from the the uh, European Research Group, the sort of Eurosceptic Group, and he, who hate the Northern Ireland Protocol. And therefore, anything which suggests that Boris Johnson might be about to renegotiate it or suspend parts of it plays well with that constituency. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because... Um, As you mentioned, Paul, we're going to have um, elections on on, um, May the 5th, including to the Northern Ireland Assembly. Uh, And as you know, the Democratic Unionist Party is currently not taking part in the executive. Um, And it's entirely possible that after May the 5th that uh, Sinn Féin will become the largest party in the Northern Ireland Assembly. And there's a question about how on earth you get the DUP to ever go back into the executive with a nationalist party holding the first minister's job. And so one of the things they're looking at at Westminster is this idea that you could pass a law, the New Northern Ireland Act, that would give the government the power to suspend parts of the protocol as a sop to the DUP. But that's an extremely controversial thing, because as some people here will say, it's almost like you're rewarding the losers in the election, mm. uh, you know, the DUP, by offering to do this. So it's, uh, it's, it's all very controversial and understandably causing a lot of irritation in Brussels. But isn't it, isn't it the case that there's a kind of dialogue of the deaf? The European, the EU,
0: is saying, well, you signed up for this, you negotiated it and you, and you agreed it on the basis of which you, you fought a general election uh, when you did, uh, whereas the British government is saying, yes, but it's not working. And so if it's not working, that gives us the right to re- reconsider and revisit.
1: Yes, I mean, the British argument is that, um, well, there are a couple of arguments being deployed, particularly by David Frost. One is that the treaty was signed under duress and the EU was making unreasonable demands on the UK in 2019, and the only way we could actually execute our departure from the EU was to sign up to this, uh, this Northern Ireland Protocol, which appears to have been done with um, Boris Johnson and David Frost crossing their fingers behind their backs, as if to say, we're going to sign, up, sign this international treaty, but we never had any intention of abiding by it. And the second argument is that the EU has interpreted the Northern Ireland Protocol in an over-rigorous way, making, you know, imposing unnecessary checks whether it's on medicines or whether it was on uh, the current bone of contention, kosher food crossing the Irish Sea into Northern Ireland from Great Britain—in uh, other words, overzealous interpretation—and there's still a hope. And th- this is um, publicly and privately professed by ministers and Boris Johnson's government that a sensible solution can be negotiated with the EU. Um, but you know these talks have been dragging on for months, and so whether anything satisfactory can be agreed is uh, very much open to question.
0: But is it true that senior members of the government, British government, are saying that at the end of the day, there are very few differences of view between the EU and the UK? And and that's kind of a code for the EU as being a bit too purist and bureaucratic about the whole thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's the, that is a, a general view. I mean, uh, you, something I suspect you'll hear quite a lot more of uh, in the near future is that the uh, British government's just decided to not introduce checks on goods no. entering the UK from the European Union because we trust the EU to manage regulatory standards, animal hygiene rules safely. Because basically, we have the same rules as the European Union. And it would be an act of self harm, according to Jacob rees <laughs> Small. It would be an act of self harm to do this. So you can imagine ministers making the argument quite soon, well, we're letting your stuff into Britain without being checked. Why do you need to be so purist about British goods entering the Irish, the, uh, the island of Ireland and therefore into the European single market? What's the big deal? So that's certainly a view that Boris Johnson takes that you know, his overzealous interpretation of this protocol is by putting borders up uh, on the Irish Sea, it's exacerbating tensions in Northern Ireland and basically endangering the peace process that flowed from the Good Friday Agreement.
0: Well, you mentioned just now the, the European Research Group, this group of... Uh back like benches in the House of Commons who are very pro-Brexit uh, and it needs to be, to be seen to accommodate their views and acquiesce their views in order to shore up his own support. But what I don't understand from my Brussels vantage point is that the leader of the ERG, Steve Baker, has come out quite recently but very publicly calling for, the, for Boris to resign or to stand down. So why is it Boris hasn't, so you suggest that Boris has not got the, the support of the ERG as we speak.
1: No, I mean, certainly Steve Baker, as you say, has, um, has probably come out and said Boris Johnson's time's up, he should go. But that doesn't represent necessarily the, the views of the entire ERG. Okay. So, I mean, there's, there's a caucus of, you know, probably scores of backbenchers who belong to that of quite some hardline Brexiteer tradition, who think that the, um, the Northern Ireland Protocol is a, is a treaty imposed on us against our will by... The European Union and it should be uh, should be done away with.
0: You, you mentioned uh, Lord Frost just now but he has of course not been in, in the job of negotiating with the EU for, for several months now and his job is taken over by Liz Truss the Foreign Secretary and I suppose J- James Cleverley the Minister for Europe. Have you detected any change in tone since these two took over the the frost job in terms of uh, trying to be more accommodating with uh, with the with brussels
1: well it's interesting i think when um, Liz Truss trust started in her job as foreign secretary and took over these negotiations there was a a bit of uh, hope on both sides that there could be a change in the the atmospheric so um, Liz Truss trust invited Maros sefcovic her opposite number in the negotiations to Chevening, her country house outside or well, foreign secretary's country house outside london and they had seemed to spend a convivial weekend together and I think this trust sort of came at it from the outside. She wasn't freighted with all the sort of baggage of months of negotiations and basically said, can't we try and sort this out? But the problem is that that, the whole thing then went into abeyance and the talks have been stalled for months now. Um, There's a general view that because of the Northern Ireland elections, you can't really be seen to be having these negotiations in any case. They'd be far too sensitive. But frankly, I don't pick up much sense from either side that they're keen to get back down to the negotiating table um, on the other side of the elections either. So, look, I mean, yeah, people on our you know, pro-Europeans would tend to see this as being the British government being unreasonable. But I think it's also fair to say that you need a bit of give and take on both sides. And I think there is a case that the European Union could show a little bit more flexibility to give the British government and the DUP at least some cover to try to avoid a complete breakdown in relations and for the protocol to be to be put into to suspension. I mean, the one thing I would say about the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Sinn, Sinn Féin support the protocol is it provides the framework for an economic boom in Northern Mm -hmm. Ireland because Northern Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds. It's the only place in the whole of Europe which has free access to the British market and the European Union single market. Um, And we've already seen the Northern Ireland economy outperforming other parts of the UK economy. So on all most sort of measures, the, the protocol is a good thing for Northern Ireland, but there is still this political sensitivity around checks on the border, which is imposing real costs and real disruption to some kinds of trade across the Irish Sea. And I think, you know, if, if both sides were able to negotiate in a constructive way, I think you could get around the, the prospects of a very real rupture in relations. To, to the extent that Liz Trust,
0: the Foreign Secretary, is is at least unofficially a, a candidate, maybe a self-professed candidate to take over... Uh, from boris johnson's prime minister does that incentivize her to become even tougher than boris when it comes to things like the northern Ireland protocol or on the contrary does she maybe seen her in her strategy i should maybe be the one who actually finds a deal and is a bit more flexible on my side in order to show i'm not like boris johnson well
1: i think initially i would have said the second argument was rang true i, I got the very firm impression from speaking to her and her people that she she thought this had gone on long enough and actually delivering a, a deal on this um would actually show that she was capable of doing things. And also, from her point of view, there was a much bigger, bigger prize at stake, which was actually to try and rebuild relations with our you know, our biggest yeah. uh, diplomatic and trading partners in, in the European Union. But as Boris Johnson's position has weakened, as the talks have run into the sand again, you start to think, well, maybe this trust sees an opportunity more as being, you know, sending out signals to the ERG we were discussing earlier as being potential important allies in a future leadership contest.
0: One keeps t- talking about uh, Boris Johnson's uh, sort of lying lives, I maybe mean, he has more than lying lives because he seems to escape every time people say he's done for, and live to fight another day. But I think it's important in the context of EU- UK relations, because as you may know, I'm sure you do know, George, a lot of European leaders say we we can't really have a serious relationship post Brexit with the UK as long as that man Boris Johnson is Prime Minister. So um, I mean, ask you to comment on that, but could you at least give your what your view on what what um, the, the lifespan, the future lifespan of Boris? Johnson as prime minister
1: is well I think it's I mean just on the first point I think you're right I mean the relationship is really bad between um, London and Brussels but particularly bad between London and Paris mm. you know this idea that's fondly held in some parts of the British government that relations could improve with Emmanuel Macron once he was re-elected as president I think is fanciful I mean Macron regards Boris Johnson as unserious unreliable and the interesting thing I find about all this is that some um, British government thinks that the way to negotiate some sort of deal on the Northern Ireland Protocol is to do a deal with Macron rather than a deal with Brussels. Yeah. Now that's going to be pretty tough, I think. Um, and even, though,
0: even though Macron's been re-elected now. Yeah,
1: so we'll, we'll see. I mean, but they, they they're putting it, they're investing an awful lot of hope in Macron as a hardliner on the Northern Ireland Protocol being the key to this. But if you look at the Euro- Britain's relationship with the with um, the 27 members of the European Union and the European Union itself, you can see sort of our. British government's trying to develop bilateral relations yeah. with countries in Northern Europe, you know, and the Baltic states, Central European countries like Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, um, using the the um, Ukraine crisis as an example of how Britain still is engaged yeah. in Europe, has a security uh, guarantee it can offer to those parts of Europe, and it's still relevant. But there's a huge hole in Britain's European policy when it comes to. Brussels, Berlin and Paris, and you, you can't get away from that. So the question is, how long is Boris Johnson going to be there and how long is this likely to persist? I mean, I think people in Europe may be disappointed to hear me say that it's entirely possible Boris Johnson will still be the conservative leader going to the next British general election, which has got to be held by 2024, so two, two years away. He does have a number of lives. You know, There's constant talk about a leadership challenge being mounted by yeah. his own party every time you think that that moment is getting closer, it gets pushed further down the track. You know, we we were told that, you know, there could be a challenge if he was fined in relation to parties held in Downing Street during the COVID lockdown. Well, he has been fined now by the police, but there's still no challenge. Then people said, well, wait until the local elections on uh, May the 5th. Well, we'll wait and see, see what happens there. But my guess is that won't be the trigger for a leadership challenge. Then wait to see if he's fined again by the police for other parties. Well, we'll wait and see what happens. There's an outstanding, inquiry into the whole affair by a senior civil servant called Sue Gray which we expect to be very critical of Boris Johnson and right. the culture of his government well we'll see if that's going to tip him over the edge and then finally there's now an extraordinarily a, a parliamentary committee looking at whether he lied to MPs about the whole thing but all these things are in in themselves very serious but each time he just seems to to move on and um, the one thing we know for sure about Boris Johnson is he's not going to resign and in the end it might come down to the British electorate rather than his own party to decide whether he's the right person to lead Britain into the um, second half of the decade.
0: Well on this question then you mentioned of, of looking for friends in, in the member states, member state capitals with the exception of these key capitals Berlin and Paris elsewhere. Do you think that's a strategy to try and circumvent the, the European Union as well? Or are they they're looking for friends wherever they can find them in, in the hope that, that those member states will, will put pressure on the EU maybe to, to help them, to help the UK? Yeah, I
1: think there is, there is that hope that um, by developing relations with particularly the, the Nordic countries, with Mark Rutter in the Netherlands, um, that they might in some way sort of make the case for Britain. But you know, this this is there's quite a lot of wishful thinking involved in that. I'm not sure that developing good relations with um, Poland and the Hungarian government are likely to, <laughs> to be particularly positive, pos- positively received in, in Brussels either. So you know, look, I mean, in the end, you have to, if you're going to rebuild relations with the European Union, you've got to have to work with Brussels, and, and you've got to work with Paris and Berlin, and and to develop a, a proper professional working relationship with those countries and. You know, the Northern Ireland Protocol is definitely an irritant that will be very hard to erase. But it's not just that; it's it's the way in which you know the antagonistic sort of sort of petty um, squabbling that re- marks the relationship between Britain and the European Union. And it does come. You mean on both sides, or more? I think. It, I mean, look. I mean, it comes. I would say, probably, it's worse from the UK point of view, particularly if you follow some of the public debate in the in the Eurosceptic press over here. But you can't absolve from responsibility, particularly the French government. You know, you have, you you know, it it comes from both sides. And frankly, the relationship is too important, I think, particularly when you look at what's happening in in Ukraine at the moment. Right. for, For this kind of petty nastiness to carry on and, you know, it requires a bit of a reset, I think, for both sides.
0: On the the Ukraine issue, uh, what's clear is that almost the two sides have been forced to to work more closely together. Uh, And I think, to be fair to both sides, in in, in a very constructive uh, and maybe beneficial to both sides manner, but it's almost as if, from my vantage point, this might be a very unfair comment, that the UK government is almost reluctant or certainly almost embarrassed to recognise that they are working well with the Europeans on 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 Ukraine. They don't want to admit that they're having a very constructive relationship for fear that they may give the impression back home here that uh, they're being too uh, accommodating or too cooperative, rather, with, with the Europeans.
1: Yeah, I think initially there was the thing that was almost a... It was seen as a positive from, because of the situation in Ukraine was obviously so grave and it was such an emergency that there was actually a sort of a brief period where the British government seemed to take pleasure out of the fact that it was you know what the, the, the West... And the EU and Britain and the Americans in particular were working in concert together. And that was a very positive thing. But um, certainly there's a view taken hold now in some European capitals, particularly in Paris, that Britain's been grandstanding, contrasting Boris Johnson's robust defense of Ukraine with that of, you know, President Macron. I think one British minister said famously that there was a whiff of appeasement in the air um, without naming any names. But certainly there's a view in Paris that Boris Johnson is trying to sort of exacerbate the um, the differences between the two sides rather than, as you say, celebrating the fact that, or to a large extent, we're working pretty well in concert with the European Union in terms of sanctions and taking a tough line with Russia.
0: Yeah. Well, in terms of, you know, global Britain, which could either be oh, an economic trading type definition or, or a more kind of dramatic one in the area of security or a combination of the two, ever since Brexit, certainly ever since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, as you know, there's been an attempt by the UK to say, well, we're, we've left the EU, but we're still fully engaged in NATO. We're a serious player in NATO. We're in the UN Security Council and other fora where we are major players. Do you think that still has, has traction? Do you think that that still helps the UK to, to convince everybody else and maybe convince itself that they are still major global players th- through, through their key positions in these other fora?
1: Well, uh, yes, I mean, I don't think we should talk talk Britain down. I mean, it's, a, it, you know, from the point of view of, um, you know, papers like the Financial Times, it's a, a great shame that we've given up the, the, the traditional orthodoxy in the Foreign Office is join clubs. Yeah. You know, you maximise your influence by joining all the clubs you can, whether it's the, you know, the, the UN you mentioned or NATO or the Commonwealth or the European Union. You know, we, we, were, in, we were at the intersection of lots of different yeah. clubs. Um, by leaving the European Union, obviously it was... You know, from my point of view, at least, it was a serious strategic error and diminished our influence. But we shouldn't do Britain down. Britain is still an important player. It's still, along with France, the main um, military power in, in, in Europe and seen as an important ally to the Americans. Hmm. And I don't think I, I think it's also fair to say that Britain has played a, you know, and Boris Johnson, to give him his credit, has played a, a good role in the Ukraine crisis. He, Britain was one of the first countries to start seriously providing Ukraine with weapons Um Boris Johnson, I think, was the first major Western leader to go to Kiev, um, yeah. uh, and he addressed, um, on the day we we're speaking, uh, Paul, the European, uh, the Ukrainian Parliament as well. So, I think, um, and got a good reception on the back of it. yeah. Yes, and you know, and and the fact that the Russians feel obliged to um, to decry Boris Johnson, I think, is probably seen by him as a bit of a badge of honour that Britain is still, at some level, at least, relevant. What I think is certainly true is that if you had a different government in, in place in London, led by Keir Starmer, for example, then I think you would start to see a lot more cooperation and just general confidence building and goodwill measures, you know, student exchanges, maybe sort of you know, removing the need for checks on animal, agri-food stuffs. So, you know, right. all, the, all the sort of the things that really cause irritation and, um, and just try to sort of start to rebuild the relationship. But it's going to be a long and very uh, painstaking process.
0: But we, Okay, one final question then. Do you see any signs at the very least that uh, Keir Starmer uh, is not, no longer trying to ignore the issue of Brexit or even uh, overstating the fact that we should uh, accept the, the finality, the reality of being outside the European Union, but at least... Criticising the government for the fact that the, the government's not doing a very good job at implementing Brexit, do you see signs that the Labour Party is being a bit more assertive and aggressive in holding the, the government to account for its its performance on implementing "quote unquote" Brexit?
1: A little bit more, and the slogan that Labour operates under is um, "Make Brexit Work," right. which basically means um, accepting Brexit as a fait accompli, but trying to find a ways of sort of um, blurring the edges a bit. I think it's going to be very difficult for them to make a big issue of that at the next um, general election, for the reasons I just just outlined. I think it's for for Keir Starmer. It's very much a live rail, you know, the fact he was advocating a second referendum seen as a massive vote loser for among many Leave-focused Labour voters. So it's um, it's a it's a difficult subject to broach, but someone needs to broach it because at the moment. the the brexiteers are getting away with murder by claiming as david frost did the other day that we've had a total reordering of our economic relationships with the world with very little in the way of economic impact and um, you you only have to look at some of the charts we've been running in the financial times over the last few weeks to see that far from there being no disruption the british trade performance since the end of the pandemic has been woeful compared with the rest of the world Uh, and someone other than just journalists should be pointing (laughs) that out.
0: Okay, well, we have to leave it there. George Parker, thank you very much for your
1: time.